I view my time with patients as really kind of steering a ship slowly over the course of time. And so I, I use that approach uh, both individually with my patients as well as with the community. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the December 4th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. Today's learning objectives are discuss the challenges and benefits of rapid antigen testing from a public health perspective and describe how schools can model safe indoor gathering. This activity is sustained by in-kind support by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Today, he will be interviewing Dr. Michael Mendoza, the Commissioner of Public Health in Monroe County, New York. Dr. Alwater, Dr. Mendoza, thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Faith, for the introductions and for Dr. Mendoza uh, joining us for this second conversation. Uh, so some of the focus today I thought would be helpful is to try to understand from both the public health perspective, but maybe some tools that clinicians can also use with their patients as, you know, frontline health providers often are the people that help advance directives, answer questions, and so on. The, the tension has always been in public health, try to do activities for the public good, for the large uh, grouping. Yet study after study says most people make decisions based on individual benefit. The classic example are masks. Uh, masks might provide a modicum of individual benefit, but you're really preventing transmission to other people. What are some of the ways that you've used either communications or points uh, to try to help advance some of the social distancing, the mitigation, the, the mask wearing? We obviously can't convince everyone, but uh, now more than ever, it's probably important uh, this winter respiratory season. Well, you know, I think this comes down to basic communication and, and shared decision-making in some fashion with, with our patients. You know, understanding where they're coming from, what perspectives they bring to the table, what fears and uncertainties they might have, testing them a little bit on their knowledge um, and their beliefs about COVID, trying to educate them a little bit uh, at a time. But as a primary care doctor, I, I have the luxury of seeing people frequently, whether it's weight management or, or dietary changes. Um, I don't expect people to make 100% uh, of the changes in one visit. I view my time with patients as really kind of steering a ship slowly over the course of time. And so I, I use that approach 
um, both individually with my patients as well as with the community. I don't have this expectation that the entire community will turn on a dime because I say something on TV one night. Um, it's a conversation, it's an evolution. And I think the beauty of social media is that I get to you know, have a pulse, if you will, on, on all of the viewpoints. And some of them are very unflattering and some of them are the opposite. But at the end of the day, if I can understand the full breadth of viewpoint in the community, I feel like I can help to coax people in the community in, in, into a better direction. But um, it requires patience. And as physicians, sometimes we're not very good at that. You know, sometimes we want to see problem, fix problem. You know, and I, I think the reality with a public health crisis is it's just not, it's just not that easy. So I think there's a lot that we can borrow from clinical medicine uh, when it comes to public health. Yeah, I, you know, in a lot of uh, meetings that I have, you you say, oh, this person's a three-meeting person. It may take three meetings to yeah. try to change their point of view. And I think this is very difficult because there's so many competing issues. Now, uh, from your public health perspective uh, in your county, the mitigations, you know, these are things that um, individuals really have to do. But there was a sense that we could try to test our way out of the pandemic perhaps with rapid antigen tests, lots of other tests. How successful has that been in your county? Well, we're really just now beginning that approach. We're, we're opening the door now to rapid antigen testing. Um, it requires a lot of education because I've always said that we do not want to derive either a false sense of security or a false sense of alarm based on these data. And so as we roll out these rapid antigen tests, I think the challenge has been to give everybody a little sense of clinical epidemiology 101, because you introduce the terms of false positive and negative predictive value and people, people's eyes start glazing over. But those principles, to the extent that we can make them accessible to the community, I think are important, but it takes time. And you know we don't wanna roll something out so quickly that it's premature that people start using this test and interpret it incorrectly and then give up and lose faith in it. So I think there's this constant balance between introducing new technology, uh, catching up with people, asking questions, answering those questions, giving more information, and then rolling out new technology. I think it's this, this complicated interplay to get to the point where we can test our way out of this, but, but testing is just half of it. Testing just finds things. The, the, the question is, will testing change behavior? And, and I think, you know, we could probably say yes, you know, HIV testing has changed, has changed behavior. You know, people use HIV testing appropriately now to understand their own risk. And I do think that people make decisions accordingly. We're not there yet with COVID. We're, we don't have that knowledge base. We, you know, we don't have the history of time that we have now with HIV. So, you know, it'll take some time, but I think, uh, you know, we're at the point in Monroe County where we're starting to have those kinds of, kinds of conversations. Yeah, the, the, I agree with you. The testing has often been confusing. People think they need negative tests. They need positive tests. I've been giving talks about influenza for many, many years, and there's still a lot of confusion about the rapid influenza diagnostic tests, which are antigen-based. And of course, now we favor molecular tests because they're better, and they are but they're a little bit slower or people don't have the rapid molecular tests. And, and indeed the rapid molecular SARS-CoV-2 testing is not widespread. So the antigen tests make some sense. I mean, they, they should detect people that have very high viral loads, they're most infectious. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've still not yet seen a lot of data about asymptomatic screening 
yet, although there's been some hints and news reports that at University of Arizona it's been used successfully and so on. How are you, given the lack of data using the test? Is it uh, just for uh, asymptomatic people or are you screening? Is it in concrete setting or are you just following the EUA and doing it on symptomatic people? All of the above. You know, we, we haven't gotten to the point where we're really following the EOA and, and looking at symptomatic people only. In New York State, we had a number of state-level uh, uh, regulations, if you will, put into place that essentially forced our hand to use the rapid antigen testing in asymptomatic uh, pools, which I think, looking back, was probably premature. I, I think that was not the right way to introduce this technology to our community. And so now we're having to catch up and uh, clarify some of the strengths and limitations of using this test in general, uh, having begun using it in probably a, a fashion that didn't make great clinical sense at first. But I do think we're evolving. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking about the New England Journal uh, uh, opinion paper uh, that was put out last uh, week, I think, which advocated for a very different use for the rapid antigen testing and, and looking at positives as being truly the marker for symptomatic contagiousness. You know, but that flies in the face of how our, our, our pure epidemiologists would uh, rather us look at this test. So I think um, that conversation is one that we're having now as well. But um, we've used it in congregate settings where you, we use it as a rapid test. It's, it's better than the rapid molecular test, which is, you know, not as rapid uh, and not as widespread, as you mentioned. Uh, we've used it in, in homeless shelters, nursing homes and in schools. And that, that, that's been where we've used it the most, uh, unfortunately, because you know, we're not finding very much in the way of positivity in schools. And most of the positives are likely to be false, given our prevalence at the time. So, yeah. Well, I think that's uh, interesting because schools are one of the areas that I think has created one of the biggest burdens. You know, and, and typically, it's a hot spot for influenza uh, transmission, right? Kids bring it to the home to the grandparents. Even though they're infect, infected to some degree, uh, the transmission rates just don't seem to be quite what they are. And, and, you know, there's been some interesting data from a few months ago from South Korea that says adolescents transmit it more than elementary school. Um, it sounds like in Monroe County, the schools have been generally open for the most part, the public schools. And what's been your experience there? I mean, obviously, uh, schools with less resources may not be able to really open up, and now you can't keep windows open. Uh, you're in a colder part of the North America, and uh, so uh, what's going to go on for the next few months? Well, you know, so far, schools have been really the model for how to be indoors. Um, you know, we have isolated really probably not even a handful of, of in-school transmissions, uh, best we can tell, and the numbers among K through 8 students, for example, have been exceedingly low. Um, when you look at the high school population, it really is those juniors and seniors. And we saw those numbers flare up after Halloween. And it wasn't because of trick-or-treating. It was because of gatherings indoors, most likely. But, you know, the question is, is it something intrinsic to the disease? Is it something about the virus or something about the transmission among younger people that makes it less likely in, in younger groups? Or has it been the the overwhelming response of, uh, on the part of our schools to undertake precautions in terms of distancing and masking and so forth. I mean, you know, you cut a classroom in half in, in size so that you can permit the six foot distance in the room. Everybody's wearing a mask, taking all these precautions. I mean, you don't see that in any other indoor setting, even in restaurants. So, um, you know, I think the jury is still out to some degree, but our schools have proven to be very safe. And, you know, I don't know if it's entirely accurate, but 
but we sometimes think of school as being more safe than the general population. If we were to put people, people anywhere, we'd, we'd rather put them in a school as opposed to any other indoor space because, you know, the schools have figured out how to do a lot of things right. So, yeah, I, I you know, my wife uh, often worries because I work in the hospital, but I say that's actually a fairly safe space that most of the, uh, the healthcare workers in our hospital have probably acquired it at home. And we've only had a handful within the hospital. But I was uh, impressed by a report last month in the MMWR that looked at Wisconsin and uh, the stay-at-home order that was lifted mid-May. And although rates of infection increased in all age groups, it skyrocketed in the 18 to 23 uh, age group. And, and I, you know, they didn't look below 18. Uh, in this particular survey, but knowing how high school students, college students like to congregate in cellars, in you know, play, you know, and so on. Uh, whereas younger children follow rules. Their parents say you wear the mask, you play outside. You know, uh, as children get older, they don't play outside as much, right? And they may play sports, but they're not doing their usual recreation there. So I, I think you're right. And, and is, it was interesting to me that uh, some of the uh, back and forth with the New York City school system, you know, in terms of these decisions, but we're all feeling our way and I think trying to do uh, the best we can. Now, in the closing minutes, we don't know a lot about the forthcoming vaccines. Uh, we're still waiting for FDA EUA approval. We're probably waiting for some sense whether people are going to follow the National Academy of Medicine and so on. What, what are you doing at a county level? Is, are the vaccines going to come to you for distribution? Or, or is a county, is your sense you need to prepare? Or is this going to be handled in a different fashion? Well, our approach to this is that um, I don't view the health department as being the only recipient of the vaccine from you know, the state, if you will. Um, I view this really as a, an opportunity to build a coalition across our community because at the end of the day, you know, we knew very early that, that uh, communities of color were disproportionately impacted by this virus. And for us to ignore that reality as we think about how do we deploy this vaccine would be a huge missed opportunity. So we've tried to build a coalition of stakeholders from across our community to, to develop the transparency that I think is going to be necessary to to fight back against what is inevitably going to be a, an onslaught of misinformation about this vaccine when it comes out, no matter what the community. So uh, I, I don't view us as the only party at the table. I view us potentially as a leader and a leading voice, but I certainly want the community to feel they're in, involved and, and to, to view us with the, the transparency that I hope that we're trying to convey. But the challenge really is how do you deploy this many vaccines over a short period of time. I mean, I think that's the golden question for every community across the country. You know, all of the logistics have yet to be figured out. We don't know which one we're gonna get. And so we don't know how cold the freezer has to be. I mean, all these details have yet to be developed. But I do think the, the standpoint of equity is important. And I think this is an opportunity for us to put our money where our mouth is and to look at equity as the vehicle through which we will deploy this vaccine. Because I think, uh, We've missed that ball too many times, and I think uh, this is too important uh, an opportunity for us to, to miss it again. Yeah, Lot, lots of yet unknowns, but I'm glad you're, you're poised. Well, one thing since um, the pandemic has made public health at a sort of a more visible level, uh, I think many people thought of public health as just dealing with tuberculosis, sexually transmitted diseases, 
um, perhaps violence issues and so on. What things have sort of fallen to the wayside given the pandemic? What, what are some of the things you're most worried about that haven't had attention, um, the opioid crisis and so on? What, what are the things that you think you'll be prioritizing, hopefully, as we get into a more balanced and, and uh, uprising 2021? Mental health has been the, was my goal for the year, was to develop a way to uh, implement a surveillance system to potentially prevent suicide. That uh, was one of the goals I had for the year. Um, and working with schools, working with community-based organizations to identify at-risk youth in particular, who express thoughts that are not rising to the level of those so-called red flags that would cause us to move in a healthcare setting, but are the pink flags, if you will, that school uh, educators and counselors hear about routinely. Um, you know, my hope was that we would find a way to, to address that as a community because, you know, teen suicide is a problem. It's a public health problem. And it's a problem that I think is amenable to, to, to public health um, interventions. You know, I think suicide prevention is very difficult for us to uh, undertake from the perspective of 20-minute clinical visits in a, in a primary care office. You know, I think that's inherently a public health uh, place. And with the pandemic, of course, uh, everything around mental health has become all the more difficult. So I think that is a casualty that we're, we're going to have to come back to in spades when this is all over. But you know, my, my whole perspective around public health is that public health is more than just health departments. And when I give talks about primary care capacity, you know, health outcomes is more than just primary care medicine. It's how do we work across the community? How do we work in, in partnership with community-based organizations and other uh, stakeholders in a more efficient way, because we all know that we have the most expensive healthcare system on the planet, and throwing more money into that system is not the answer. You know, the question is, how do we do a better job with the money that we do have in the system, deploy it more wisely, more equitably, um, to achieve the outcomes that we all know that we should be able to attain, uh, given the strength and size of our system. So that, that is the challenge I think we're going to have to entertain uh, once the dust settles from COVID-19. Well, if anything, public health officials have always uh, done very well with less uh, as the best possible. But I want to thank you for sharing your insights and expertise. I think Monroe County is awfully lucky to have someone like yourself uh, helping uh, during this pandemic. So I, I wish you and uh, your staff and, and also, of course, your residents uh, as, uh, as well and safe a uh, next few weeks and months as possible. So thank you for uh, discussing today. Thanks very much. Thanks for your time. Dr. Allwater, Dr. Mendoza, thank you again for your time today. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.